Excited for our Coffee Talk guest today. Uh, my guest today is Lori Harito. She's a former journalist uh, who has worked for Global News, ET Canada, and TVO. She now runs her own PR firm, Boulevard of Dreams, and is a communications and PR specialist. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. What kind of coffee do you like to drink on a Saturday morning? Are you a coffee drinker? <laughs> Big time. Yeah. Big coffee drinker. I just finished my coffee. We have, um, it was a pandemic purchase, but one of those really nice machines that just pours out the coffee for you first thing in the morning. Oh. And I'm addicted to these like almond milk coffee creamers. Addicted. Yes. So okay. it's a lot of those strong coffee and then the morning starts. Awesome. Well, you have been uh, a Torontonian for, for many years, but you were born in Albania. So tell me, I was. tell me about this. I know that you were only there for a short period of time before your family had to leave. Uh, but what do you, what stories have you heard from your family when it comes to just living in Albania and just, you know, obviously the tumultuous probably experiences mm -hmm. that they've had? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I remember a little bit, you know, I was very young. I left when I was six, but I was actually born into a communist country. Uh, so that meant we didn't have Christmas. We didn't have, I did not have a typical uh, upbringing as a child. And, you know, it, we were very, very close as a family, but it just, you know, we had to leave very quickly thanks to the hard work of my parents. And we moved to England uh, when I was six years old. So, you know, I have those like very weird childhood memories mm. when I was young. Um, yeah. You say that your life uh, is measured in the lens of pre, during, and post-immigration. How has yes. that formed who you are today? It, well, it's formed everything because, you know, it, immigration can do a lot to your family. So it yeah. brings you closer or it can very much damaged relationships for my family we all we had was each other um and so I saw my parents struggle a lot because we left behind our families and my my mom was very close to her parents and I saw her struggle with the loss of being removed from her home and same with my my dad and it's I say it's in chunks because there was, you know, the period when I was born in Albania, then we moved to England where I had to learn how to be in a completely different mm. society. And I was six years old at this time. And my upbringing was just very different. I had to learn English and that was very hard at school because the kids would look at me differently and they would speak to me and I couldn't communicate with them. Um, but I do remember learning English very quickly at school and then learning it through children's books. Mm. And that's how I learned English. <laughs> and then from England, we moved to Canada. And so it's it's broken up into three chunks of my my childhood and then being a teenager. Now, I, I wonder, I mean, being in England, I mean, Eng England is a place where you do see a lot of cultures, right? Like there's a lot of a lot of people who um, are coming from immigrant backgrounds in England and and so much more here in Canada, in Toronto. And so what is that like, uh, you know, through the struggle? I mean, I, you know, also a child of immigrant parents as well. Um, what are those struggles like? And then also, what is it like to then see people who are going through the same struggle, I guess, that you have gone through and, you know, learning English and 
having to acclimatize, having to learn new cultural norms. Uh, I, I feel like it's a little bit different maybe when you're around other people who are also learning that from different parts of the world. For sure. It was different in England because where we were and at that time in 1997, it wasn't as multicultural as it is mm, now. Okay. So I don't think we really had that community of people who were going through the same thing. Um, so it very much felt, you know, we were brought into this country and you had to learn uh, and just become part of it and understand its culture. There really was no learning curve. Mm. Canada was very different. Canada was, you know, we are such a diverse country and a country that allows you to be and you're accepted and you can have your own culture. Um, whereas in England, you you just trial by fire, I yeah. suppose. Um, and I think, and I just saw my parents really struggle to fit in, but really feeling like they needed to fit into British society, which can be difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and they had to adapt to that. But luckily, they made a lot of friends who helped them through the immigration journey. But, you know, my childhood, my teenager years definitely weren't settled. They felt I knew my parents were doing their absolute best while mourning and grieving the loss of the country and their their whole life. And now, in, now that I'm in my 30s, it and you look back and you think, how do parents do that? They are raising children, grieving the loss of what they had, and then adapting to a new place while trying to find jobs. How you, you take on that stress and that burden, and it fundamentally changes you. Yeah. I mean, I always think about, just as you said, the sacrifice. Does that, does that not make you just appreciate the benefits that you have even more. You know, when you think about the struggles that your parents have gone through, what they had to do in order for you to be able to live in a country, as you said, where you can celebrate who you are, you can celebrate your country. I don't know about you, but that definitely has has molded me in who I am and just appreciating the struggle that your parents go through in order to provide more for you. Very, very much. It's a shame as a child or a teenager, you don't know this. You can't sympathize with your parents. You don't understand what they're going through. Um, over the pandemic, my family and I got much, much closer. And as I, you know, as I grew up, I started to really understand the sacrifices that they both had made in an effort to provide a better life for us. And it's in subtle ways that you recognize what they have done because parents or my parents at least don't say, well, we did all of this for you and you should be so grateful. They never say that. It's in those subtle moments where you realize how much they gave up and how much they had to endure in two different, in two very different countries. Uh, and they survived and they are now thriving through it. And, you know, some, when I think about it, it's just so, so overwhelming of how much they did and I've always thought, how do you repay parents who do that? Uh, and, you know, I try in, in big and, and small ways to repay them, but it is very, they, they altered their lives for their kids. I think you repay them in what you've done. You went to Ryerson, you went mm -hmm. to J school, my alma mater mm -hmm. as well. 
Um, and then you realized journalism wasn't for you and later on became an entrepreneur and uh, entered into the PR field. Uh, why make the switch? What was it about journalism that just didn't resonate? Um, it was very tough. I don't know if you felt this way too, but I found it very difficult at school at Ryerson. It was definitely a shock to the system. Um, and so I, I did do the four years of journalism, but my peers and students were very into their journalism. Like they loved it mm -hmm. and they would go out, do streeters, interview people. And I didn't have the same joy, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so actually my second year at Ryerson, I thought about switching over to PR, but it was my grandma who said, no, stick with journalism. Like you may learn to love it. I learned to respect it. I didn't learn to love it for myself. Mm -hmm. um, so I, once I graduated, I worked at in the global newsroom. And I don't think at the time we were equipped with enough re resources to do the job well, to handle it from a mental health aspect, because some of the stories we were covering were shootings and stabbings and a lot of really difficult things that at a young age were very jarring to understand and to report about. And we just weren't giving the coping tools at that time. And I think that really affected me um, to do it day in and day out. I know it's something that a lot of young journalists struggle with right now, especially because they also have to deal with more conversations happening on social media. There are just more touch points to learn about people's um, the way that they're dealing with life and the issues they're navigating. Um, so I, you know, I went from global news. I also continued to write and work at TVO and TVO allows you to do more in-depth reporting. And I loved that, but it still felt like a shoe that didn't quite fit me. Mm. And after a few years of doing this, I went more into entertainment reporting and I really loved that but I think with writing and with journalism, sometimes writing comes easy and you want to do it and you see that page and you're like, I know the story I want to tell. And I couldn't, it didn't come easy to me. Um, and I have that curiosity. I just couldn't write it as well um, or with as much passion as perhaps my peers were writing. I think the journalism industry has, of course, changed so significantly and is continuing to change. And there are a lot of questions about it, especially in the Canadian industry. Uh, but I found something that fit when I went more into marketing and PR. And about six years ago, I decided to go out on my own because I had those writing skills, freelancing skills, as well as PR. And I launched my own company and I love it so, so much. And I think I finally found that shoe that fit me mm. in PR. That's awesome. What do you mm -hmm. think is the biggest mistake that people make when it comes to PR and managing their brand? With PR, I think it's not developing relationships with journalists, producers, and editors. I think it's taking it for granted that a story will be written about, and it's not that easy. I think a lot of people misunderstand what makes a story a story and how important it is to find a good story that consumers and, and readers want to know about. What we are battling against right now is a deficit of attention 
when there are multiple mediums and new ways to consume information, not only radio and traditional news sources, but you now have TikTok, podcasts, um, audiobooks. So you're battling with more information. Your story has to be very good and very interesting for um, a new consumer that has limited attention at this point. Yeah. And be able to encapsulate it in like seconds or, you know, a minute at least, you know, like, I mean, as you said, short attention spans and uh, everybody's vying for, you know, the uh, the capital in that realm. Um, So it becomes even more difficult. And we all are attached to our social media and our phones everywhere we go. Um, Okay, I want to throw some uh, of our news stories from this week out here and would love your take on them. First story, a Toronto Fitness and Training Center is hosting an upcoming uh, public transit self-defense workshop to teach riders how to defend themselves in case of an attack on the TTC. First of all, would you take this class, Lori? Uh, I have taken self-defense classes before. They're very helpful. Very, very helpful. And also a little bit scary because it teaches you all of the ways that you can be attacked (laughs) that you don't realize. So that brings it into your consciousness. (laughs) Yeah. Let's hear a little bit of what the owner of Krav Magna Academy said to our Alex Pearson earlier this week about this self-defense course. We've had many people reach out to us really over the past uh, year, and we've done some individual training. But it seems um, you mentioned the uh, lower police presence, and people want to be able to feel safe uh, taking public transit. So we want to give them some basic skills to do that. And a lot of that's situational awareness, but the demand has been quite incessant. Hmm. Uh, especially over the past couple of months. So yeah, it's, we want to be able to help people with that. That wasn't Alex. It was Ed Keenan filling in for Alex. I just heard the, hmm, and I was like, that's not Alex's voice. That was Ed Keenan uh, earlier or uh, just late last this week, uh, filling in for Alex Pearson. Um, do you now, Lori, I mean, again, as he said, you know, there's a heightened concern about security, safety, on the TTC. What does this say you think about the transit system and the fact that, you know, Christopher is saying that people are interested. They've been asking for uh, for this specific class to defend themselves uh, when they're on the system. Mm-hmm. My knee-jerk reaction when I saw this is it's too bad that we are at a place that we need these classes, yeah. that we need to offer these to people who feel unsafe on the TTC. Um, I know, and I know a lot of my friends, specifically my female friends, have felt very unsafe uh, at the TTC, on the TTC, sorry. Mm. And it's a shame that we are where we are and that we need to have self-defense courses. I think it's wonderful that they are offering this, that there's a broader, uh, that there's accessibility into self-defense classes. I just hate that we are here yeah. yeah, and that we need to do this. And the other thing is it doesn't address the root problem of the attacks on the TTC or why people are generally feeling a little bit more unsafe in the city. Yeah. And that they have to take security measures into their own hands. I think that's, you know, that's also a part of it, right? Not feeling like, you know, someone will be there to help them through this process. Um, Okay. Another interesting headline that came up this week, Canadian Tire, Costco and Staples have been deemed 
Canada's top three most respected general merchandise retailer stores in 2023. When I read this, I just thought, really interesting. What are, what are your initial thoughts about these <laughs> names? Canadian Tire, Costco, and Staples, most respected. Well, I am a diehard person for Costco. So yeah. <laughs> I do love Costco. And I know during the pandemic, it was very busy. Canadian Tire, I guess because it's such a legacy and icon store, um, you know, it hands out printed money, mm -hmm. which people love. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I understand. I think there's also, there was a nostalgia to go back into retail stores and these stores are very abundant. They're everywhere. So I think people love that shopping experience. And I know that Dollarama was also on that store, um, that list. Yeah. Dollarama has opened more stores in Toronto. It is serving more cu uh, customers. And that just speaks to sort of where we are in this inflationary period and the recession. Staples and Best Buy, I don't think I understand that one. <laughs> I, like, I think we have to run, but I think Canadian Tire, whatever, whenever I go in, it's kind of semi-empty. There are, you know, tons of dads in the automotive section putting around <laughs> trying to find something. You never can find a salesperson. That's just my experience at my local Canadian Tire. Maybe others are better. Staples, <laughs> always empty. Like, you, ghost town. Like, yes. there's never anybody there. Uh, Costco, again, you like, you're just like... You're you're shoving people aside just to get that bread <laughs> or, or, yes. or get the cheese, right? The big brick of cheese that you're gonna like eat forever. Uh, <laughs> but those are just the things that I think of when I think of these stores. Lori, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us for Coffee Talk today. Thanks, Maggie. Have a wonderful day.